Good morning, friends. Today's message is titled, Just a Momentary Indiscretion. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You know, there's no doubt that something has really gone wrong with the human race. I mean, no one can deny that fact. I mean, we are not all that we could be. And no matter how much we boast of our technological achievements, the sorry story of man's inhumanity to man always grabs the front page. The details change, the phases come and go, but the story stays the same. Something evil lurks inside the hearts of every person. No one is immune, no one is exempt, no one is truly innocent. Call it what you will, a twist, a taint, a bent to do wrong. But somehow, somewhere, someone injected poison into the human bloodstream. That is why even when we do the right thing to do, we go ahead, when we know the right thing to do, we go ahead and choose to do wrong. Deliberately, repeatedly, defiantly. You know, sin is an unpopular subject, but sometimes preachers are criticized for talking too much about it. But we do it for three reasons. Uh, one, because the Bible says so much about it. And two, because we are realists. And three, we talk about it because we must know the bad news before we can truly appreciate the good news. Well, let's start with the fact of sin. Now, rather than quote a number of verses, which would be easy enough to do, uh, well, maybe I will rattle off a few of them. You can look these up on your own. Genesis 1.27, Genesis 3, verses 6 to 24, Romans 5.12 and verse 19. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, Romans 3, 8 to 18. And I can go on and on. In those verses, you're going to see words like spiritually dead, inherently corrupt, incapable of pleasing God, hopelessly lost. And you can tack on at the end, subject to the wrath of God. I mention this because I want you to know what we believe right up front. Uh, we do not take an optimistic view of human nature. Quite the contrary, apart from divine grace, we're all in a heap of trouble. The world is a mess, and we all know it. The world is a mess because we ourselves, that's you and me, are messed up. Now, the problem is not out there. It's in us. The world is bad because we are bad. The world is evil because evil lurks within us. You know, it's common today to talk about evil as a result of a bad environment or a lack of education or poverty. I mean, many people believe that if only these things could be changed, we could eradicate evil in this world. We hope to change people by changing their environment. But after billions and billions of dollars, it's not happened and it's not going to happen. Today, we have pr produced a, a generation of high-tech criminals who know how to kill more people with less effort than ever before. Racism still remains, killing continues, crime spreads, nations are still at war. Ethnic violence seems to be the order of the day. But why? It's because there is evil inside the human heart. See, our problem is sin that separates us from God. <clears throat> we call it by other names, we whitewash it and then relabel it. That's the source of my title today, just the momentary indiscretion. I go back to a time visiting with a person who came in and said, Pastor, I need to tell you about something I did. And when he got done, I said, well, that's that's some sin. <laughs> and he says, oh, no, it wasn't a sin. It was just a momentary a lack of discretion. 
Well, you can take a bottle of rat poison and label it whole milk, but that doesn't change the basic character. If you drink it, you're going to be wholly dead. Uh, poison is still poison no matter what you call it. You can call it a momentary indiscretion, but it's still sin. And the Bible traces sin back to Eden. God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of one particular tree. But the serpent deceived Eve, who ate the fruit, then offered it to Adam, who, though he was not deceived, ate the fruit anyway. It was through the, that deliberate choice that sin entered the world. Before that moment, he was a living soul in an immortal body. After that moment, he was a dead soul in a dying body. Now, if you had been there that day, all you would have seen was a man taking fruit from his wife and eating it. No lightning, no thunder, no bells or scary music in the background. Yet from that one act of disobedience, awesome results flowed out across history. Now, theologians call this the event, the fall. It means that when Adam ate the fruit, he fell from the state of innocence into a state of guilt. He fell from grace to judgment. He fell from life to death. He fell from heaven to hell. Now, in Romans 5.12, we are told that by one man, sin entered the world. Now, there's no way to explain the world apart from the fall. How do you explain the rash of shootings, the protests, the violence? I mean, by one man, sin entered the world. How do you explain babies having babies? Well, by one man, sin entered the world. How do you explain the racial hatred and ethnic violence today? Well, by one man, sin entered the world. How do you explain rampant divorce and broken homes? By one man, sin entered the world. All of the hatred, the greed, the violence, the competition, the injustice, fraud, killing, wanton bloodshed, where does it come from? And why can't we change human nature? Well, again, the answer is simple. By one man, sin entered the world. Now, you might be asking, what does all of this have to do with you and me? Well, in some mysterious way, you were there and I were there. I was there. When Adam sinned, you sinned with him and so did I. This is the doctrine of original sin in its plainest form. It just means that when Adam sinned, you sinned. When Adam disobeyed, you disobeyed. When Adam fell, you fell. When he died, you died. Now, although you and I were not historically there in the garden, because we are descendants of Adam in his family tree, we suffer the consequences of what he did. You can look at it this way. Adam was the driver of the bus of humanity. And when he drove the bus over the cliff, we went down with him. He was at the controls of the airplane when it crashed. It doesn't matter that we were back in the coach section watching a movie. When he crashed, we all went up in flames. When Adam sinned, he tainted the human bloodstream. And so the virus of sin, worse than the corona, entered and as a result every baby born into this world is tainted with the deadly sin virus every person is born with a tendency to do wrong we were all born with a sin nature now a lot of people think god has some kind of divine voltmeter that registered good that registers good neutral and evil they think that by nature the needle that measures their soul is somewhat right in the middle not too bad not too good mostly just neutral they aren't the best, but they aren't the worst either. But the Bible tells us that because of Adam's sin, you come into this world with the needle stuck firmly on evil. Apart from the grace of God, that's where the needle is going to stay as long as you live. To say it another way, you are not evil because you do evil. You do evil because you are evil. Your basic nature is corrupt. It's depraved. That's your inheritance from Adam. 
You were born living on the wild side. You were born with a minus on your record. You, you turned the wrong way back in the garden, and all your life you've been going the wrong way. And see, it started with Adam, friends, but it didn't end there. It continues in your life and mine. I mean, Adam was the first sinner, but he's not the last. And we follow in his footsteps because we share his tainted blood. Sin has affected every part of our being, our mind, emotions, will, intellect, moral reasoning, decision-making, words, and deeds. No part of your life is exempt from the debilitating effects of sin. As someone has said, if sin were blue, we'd be blue all over. Part would be dark blue, part would be sky blue, part would be light blue, but every part would be blue in one shade or another. And that leaves us with God's solemn statement that there is no one righteous, not even one. That's Romans 3.10. As God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see a single righteous person, not even one. You might say, well, how can this be? How can God look down at nearly 8 billion people and not see even one person whose life pleases him? Isn't this kind of an overly harsh judgment? Well, the answer is that God judges us according to a different standard than the one that we use. Now, most of us grade on the curve. I mean, that is, we look at our neighbor and say, well, (laughs) I'm not as bad as he or she is. Or we compare ourselves with someone who we know at work who makes us look good by comparison. But friends, God doesn't judge that way. When he looks down from heaven, the standard he uses is his sinless perfection. He compares us to his own perfect holiness, his own perfect love, his perfect wisdom, his perfect justice. And compared with God's own perfection, there's no one who comes close to being righteous in his eyes. Well, where then will you find a righteous person on this earth? In Brazil? No. Cambodia? No. Japan? No. Malaysia? No. Turkey? No. Israel? No. America? No. Would you find a righteous person in Congress? <laughs> well, you got to be kidding. Well, how about Branson, Missouri? Nah, forget it. Chicago? No, nah, sorry. Dallas? No, nope, not at one. Los Angeles? No. Nope. I mean, is there anywhere on all the earth where we could find a truly righteous person? The answer is no. From God's point of view, there is not a single righteous person in the entire human race. So let's be honest and say that even as we hear these words, there's something in us that resists this harsh conclusion. I mean, some of you are feeling very uncomfortable right now, I'm sure. See, when God looks down from heaven, he sees a race of people who are worthless as far as redemption is concerned. We are like a basket of fruit that's gone rotten in the hot summer sun. We have all gone bad in the eyes of God. So, what is the conclusion? There are no redeeming features in the human race, not in the so-called good person, nor in the evil lawbreaker. From God's point of view, both are wholly corrupt. Let's take a look at the nature of sin for a moment. What is sin, actually? It is any violation of God's righteous character. That's plain and simple. Is anything we say or do or think or imagine or plan that doesn't meet God's standard to perfection. And the Bible uses many words to describe sin. They say sin is lawlessness. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is transgression. Uh, Sin is iniquity. And it's a stronger word that means deliberately choosing to do wrong. Sin is deviation from the standard. That kind of describes the crookedness of the soul that results in a life full of twisted choices and evil deeds and broken relationships. You see, friends, sin touches the inner ugliness of the soul. It involves our thoughts, our dreams, and hidden motivations. 
that no one else sees but but God. And so much takes place beneath the surface. Now, we can hide from others and from ourselves, but we can't hide from God. All things are laid bare before his all-seeing eyes. So what are the consequences of sin? Where does this leave us? Well, I can sum up the data this way. Because of sin, we're lost. And to be lost means to be in a position of great personal danger because you cannot find your way to safety. The unsaved are lost in precisely that sense. They're far from God and do not know where or how to find him. Another consequence is being separated from God. I mean, sin has created a great gap between God and us. We were made to know him, but our sin keeps us from him. We feel it and we know it's true. There's like a, a, a cloud between us, a mountain of sin rising up in a deep chasm beneath us. This is why we're restless at times. Nothing on earth can satisfy our hunger for God. That's why we seek and search and try. It also consequences being blind. I mean, sin destroys our ability to see things clearly. We're also said, Scripture says, dead. And a dead person has eyes but can't see, ears that can't hear, lips that can't talk, feet that can't move. We have no ability to respond to God on our own. Unless someone raises them to life, they can never know the God who made them. Scripture also says the consequence is to be enslaved. And because of sin, we're slaves to our own lusts. Even our heart has been corrupted. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us that the heart is deceitful and wicked so that we cannot trust our own instincts. Left to ourselves, we repeatedly choose to do wrong. Some of you may remember the old cartoon character Pogo. He once said, we have met the enemy and he is us. That's us. See, God says, thou shalt not, but we say, I think I will. And then we hate ourselves afterwards. Why do we do that? Because we're enslaved to sin. And we're helpless. That's the logical end. A person who's lost or separated or blind or enslaved is truly helpless. Trapped with no hope. So hope and help need to come from somewhere else. In the Christian version of Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk a lot about the famous 12 steps. The first step goes something like this. I admitted my life was out of control and I was powerless to change my situation. The next step involved admitting that you need God's help to return to moral sanity. And the third step says, I turn my life over to God, humbly asking for his help. And on it goes to the 12 steps of complete moral reformation. Now, friends, that whole process is based solidly on biblical truth. Those who've been in this program will tell you that the first step is the hardest and the most crucial. Until you face the bad news about your condition, you cannot truly and totally turn your life over to God and ask for his help. And the same is true for all of us, no matter what our personal issues may be. I mean, sin has left us powerless and enslaved, totally unable to save ourselves until we admit that our lives can never really change. So here's the bottom line. You were born in sin, separated from God. I mean, you're dying physically and dead spiritually. And you're responsible for every sin you've ever committed. You're in big trouble. Unless someone steps in to help, you can never be saved. Well, next week's message is going to be a little more positive because we're going to talk at length about who that someone is. But for the moment, let me say that Jesus is the only one who can take away our sin. And we say, thank God for that. At one point in his ministry, Jesus said that he did not come to call the righteous, but he called, guess who? You and me, sinners, to repentance. 
Did he mean that some people did not need to be saved? No, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He meant that only those who realize their sickness will get the help they need. So, friends, do you feel your need for God? Do you admit that you are a sinner? Do you agree with God's estimate of your desperate condition? If you are, you're an excellent candidate for salvation. If you don't agree with what I have said, nothing else I will say will matter one way or the other. Now, like many of you, I've had friends who've undergone chemotherapy. For some, it's a very unpleasant experience indeed. And I don't know of anyone who takes chemotherapy for the fun of it. You take it because the doctor says if you don't do it, you're going to die. So you take it as the only available remedy. See, if sin is the cancer of the soul, then the gospel is God's divine remedy. In fact, it's the only remedy for sin. So let's wrap up this little message with two thoughts. One, uh, we must face the truth about our own condition. And until we do, we cannot be saved. And second, until we see how bad the bad news really is, we will never appreciate the good news of the gospel. May God help us continually to see ourselves as we really are and to continually run to the cross is our only hope of salvation. Until next week, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.